what were the motivations in early Christianity that sent people out, particularly people who were ministering uh, across the borders of geographical boundaries or linguistic or cultural boundaries? What was it that motivated those moves for the kingdom? You are listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javet, a podcast that presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Here is your host. Hello and welcome back to our Urban Voices. I am your host, Dr. Alphonse Javid. Today, I am joined by Matt Burden, pastor of Second Baptist Church in Maine. Today, we will be talking about his new book, Missionary Motivation, Challenges from the Early Church, which explains how we can rediscover the early church's vision for global missions. Uh, Matt Our guest is an author, pastor, and a scholar, currently serving a church in Eastern Maine. His research focuses on the intersection of church history and missiology with a focus on understanding the missional ideas that motivated previous generations of Christians. He is the author of several books, including Missionary Motivation Challenges from the Early Church. Thanks for joining us today, Matt. Well, thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here, and I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah, it's uh, always a blessing to have a fellow pastor on the podcast, because then you get the flavor of uh, church life as a pastor and uh, um, missions-oriented mind that comes with that. I was a missions pastor for um, 11 years, and Mm. before that, uh, another 12 years as a missionary, uh, so it's uh, it's very close to my heart, the missions uh, world. Missions Absolutely. world is very close to my heart. So I'm so happy that you are here. Before we get started, please tell us uh, very briefly about your family. And here's my rationale. I, I believe that families are important. And for my audience, I think it's important for them to know before they know your work, what you do, your book, and all the other things about your mind and where, about your experience. It's important that they connect with you as a human. So I, I like doing that. Uh, so just tell us briefly a little bit about your uh, family and then we'll get into this interview. Sure. Well, my, uh, my family of origin growing up was a missionary family. So for the better part of the first half of my growing up years, um, we were on a mission field in Brazil working with a Bible translation agency. And so uh, after that time, we moved back here to Maine. This is where most of my extended family is from. Uh, Now I live in eastern Maine, actually as far east as you can go in Maine, right up to the border. Uh, Have a lovely wife, Rachel. She's from Pennsylvania. And we're raising three kids, nine years old, 11 years old, and 13. So we're just now hitting those teenage years. Wow. Mines are still fairly young. My, um, I have six, four, and my twin girls are uh, two years old. So two-year-old twin, you can imagine. We are still mm-hmm. trying to figure out. Um, <laughs> but so happy to hear about your family. To start off, can you tell us more about what inspired you to write this book? What is the, what is the backstory? Mm-hmm. Well, this book, um, Missionary Motivations, really started just out of sheer curiosity, intellectual curiosity. Like I said, I grew up in a missionary family. And, uh, you know, so 
my perspective growing up in the church was this beautiful, broad perspective on global Christianity, uh, the, this vision of God's work amongst all nations. And uh, growing up in, in not just missionary family, but, you know, part of that evangelical tradition of missions, um, there are particular values that come along with that and the way we think about the work of God amongst the nations and the responsibility of the church in making uh, the message of the gospel known. And so all of that was kind of in my head. It was the perspective on which I looked at the world. Um, and uh, I eventually went to college, started studying for um, intercultural ministry as well. Did some work on my own in, in my 20s in various places around Africa. Uh, but eventually the Lord led my calling towards pastoral ministry and scholarship. And so I went to seminary. And while I was in seminary, I started reading as much as I could of the works of the early church fathers, these earliest Christian writings. Well, one of the things that jumped out to me, the more I read these, was that they were kind of sounding a different note than the one that I was familiar with. Um, from my perspective, thinking about global Christianity, thinking about mission, you know, I knew that the church grew a lot in those early centuries, right? It's expanding through the Roman Empire. It's expanding beyond the bounds of the Roman Empire, especially to the east. And so I, I was kind of expecting to find, you know, similar, familiar ideas from the ones that I had grown up with that, you know, maybe we'd find writers talking about how uh, all people around the world need to be able to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and therefore we should be sending people out to them. This idea of, you know, making sure that we are presenting this personal message of salvation. But it wasn't really there. At least it wasn't very prominent in these earliest Christian writings. Um, what I started picking up on was some other themes. I mean, they were very missional. The kingdom work was expanding through their ministries, but they weren't articulating it in quite the same ways that I was familiar with. So as a scholar, I just found that really interesting. I wanted to know what kind of concepts were in their heads when they think about mission, when they articulate, you know, why are we going to these other places? And it's hard to find writings that specifically say that. But if you read enough of their works, you can kind of start to put the pieces together to say, okay, here are the values that were important to them. So when I, while I was in seminary, I actually designed an independent study for myself just to study this question. What were the motivations in early Christianity that sent people out, particularly people who were ministering uh, across the borders of geographical boundaries or linguistic or cultural boundaries? What was it that motivated those moves for the kingdom? Um, so I did this research in seminary and then kind of just let it sit for a while. It's been about 10 years, uh, a little bit more since that time. Uh, and it's probably taken me that time to, to really sink into the theological study of the early church to the point where I could, I thought, faithfully articulate some of the ways that early Christians saw these. So it's really just a story of sort of intellectual curiosity. Why are they talking about this issue in ways that 
didn't sound familiar with the way that I was used to. Just, just to clarify for uh, our listeners who may be unclear, can you define the term early church? What were you, what are you talking about when you say early church? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. It's a really great question, and I'm glad you asked it because it is kind of a nebulous term. And in this book, we're using it in sort of the broadest possible sense. Mm-hmm. So it appears in the title of the book, Missionary Motivations, Challenges from the Early Church. I don't actually use it that much within the text of the book because it's, it, it is a little bit nebulous. Sometimes people, when they use that term, early church, they're talking just about the apostolic generation and the churches that were planted there, you know, first century Christianity. Other people will talk about the early church in terms of the whole patristic period, what we call the early church fathers and mothers, right? And even that, I mean, historically speaking, even that's kind of nebulous. Some people will define the patristic period as running through, you know, about the mid 400s, especially in, in the Western Christian tradition, that tends to be the boundary. In much of the Eastern Christian tradition, they'll go all the way up to the mid 700s, talking about patristics, the early church fathers, and those early church writings. So when this book talks about the early church, it's actually using the most expansive definition possible, which is from the first century through the mid 700s, the mid 8th century. So that's sort of the entire patristic period in its broadest definition. And in, in the discipline of history, it's also kind of nice because that dovetails with uh, the end of a period that historians call late antiquity. Uh, late antiquity is usually thought to run up to about 750 AD, and then you get into the medieval period. Uh, so we're covering a pretty broad range of dates when we look at this. Uh, but a couple of the advantages uh, for me in writing it is that that breadth lets me focus in on a couple of the really exemplary mission movements of the early church. Uh, the Church of the East, which uh, evangelized uh, really from the fifth century onward in uh, Persia, what's now Iran, all the way up into Central Asia, all the way east into China, um, getting into India, really extraordinary missionary movement. And on the other side of the geographical world, uh, the Celtic missionaries in Europe, uh, what they did in the British Isles and then establishing uh, new ways of thinking about and living out the gospel on the continent of Europe. And that again was, you know, fifth century at the earliest and developing through sixth, seventh and early eighth centuries. So it is a pretty broad definition chronologically, but that gives me room to touch on a lot of the, the biggest and best of the picture of early church mission. That, that's fantastic. And I hope uh, it gives uh, the audience some understanding of um, uh, different ways that people define this era of uh, early church, um, but more specifically how you using and how you framing that for your uh, book or this talk at least. Uh, you point out in your book that not very much of the New Testament actually prescribes how to do missions or share the gospel. Can you talk more about that? Sure. Um, and that might sound a little surprising if, if you come out of an evangelical background like me, because, you know, that's, that's one of the main things we assume about 
scripture and the Christian life is that we're to go out and tell people. But, but really that's, I think it's important to recognize that that's a secondary action that we bring to the text. There's a lot of the new Testament that can be applied really easily to missions, evangelism, however you want to term it, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can look through the new Testament and take parts of it and apply it really easily. But as I say, application is a secondary action that we bring to the text. Doesn't mean it's wrong. Um, but uh, what I want to do is back us up and say, what is the text actually commanding Christians to do? Kind of that first level of address within, um, within scripture's teaching. And so the way you phrase it as sort of prescribing how to do mission is a good way of thinking about it. So if we were to ask, you know, where does the New Testament kind of command or direct or prescribe mission? You know, we can probably think of certain things, obviously the great commission texts that Jesus says to his disciples, uh, the end of Matthew in the long ending of Mark, the beginning of Acts, he's sending them out, right? There's a couple other ones as well. Jesus in the gospels, you know, when he's preparing his group of disciples to go out on these short-term mission trips that he sends them out on. He has some instructions for them on those. What's interesting, though, is that if you look at the New Testament as a whole and think about the experience of lay Christians, ordinary believers in the first century living in places like Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, and they're receiving teachings, apostolic teachings from Paul. We have his letters. But in those letters, you really don't get much in terms of direct prescription for how to be involved in mission or even necessarily that you should be involved in that kind of mission that we think about. Uh, There's a lot there about how to live as the church, right? Mm -hmm. How to live an authentic, real, vibrant Christian life Mm -hmm. in the context where you are. But there's not actually that much that where Paul or Peter or John says, hey, get up and go and start proclaiming the gospel in this next town or that next region. It's just not there. What's interesting about the history of the early church is that they seem to have picked up on this disjunction between, you know, Christ's commands directly to his followers, his disciples. Mm -hmm. And then the way that the application of that is expressed in a rather different way to ordinary lay Christians in the epistles, the rest of the New Testament. Because what we see is that there's kind of this assumption that the Great Commission really was for the disciples. It was for that apostolic generation that Christ sent out. Now, I'm not saying that their interpretation of that is correct. I'm just kind of explaining the way that they took it. So they took it that way and they didn't tend to apply the Great Commission to themselves very much. In fact, it drops out of Christian writing by the second century. It doesn't pop up again until you reach St. Patrick, great missionary figure. But that's, you know, that's three, four hundred years later that he starts taking that text and says, hey, we should all be doing this. We should be applying this teaching of Christ, not just to what the disciples did historically, but to all of us. What's interesting is that they look at that disjunction between commands to the disciples and what the rest of the New Testament seems to say. And they really put less emphasis on those commands, as I said, 
and more emphasis on the model of how you live. And so what's interesting is that when you look at missionary movements in the early church, they're very missional, but they tend to emphasize different passages than we sometimes do. So we tend to look at texts like the Great Commission and say, this is binding on all Christians everywhere. And they would say, well, no, Jesus just said that to the disciples. And they look at texts like in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is sending out his 70 or 72 followers, sending them out on their mission trip. And we tend to look at that and the commands that he gives. Don't take a cloak, you know, stay in someone's house. If they'll have you stay there, preach about the kingdom, then move on to the next town. We tend to take Jesus's directions there as to that group of people, those disciples. That's how we wanted them to act on that mission trip. Whereas the early church, uh, they kind of do the reverse and they say, no, we think this is binding on all Christian history everywhere. And so you have these movements of Christians who they're not emphasizing Matthew 28, but they might be emphasizing Luke 10 and they're going out two by twos uh, living this lifestyle of ascetic devotion because they really want to capture what it means to live like Jesus. And that was sort of one of the core ideas of their missional practice is just let's go out, let's walk around and live as close to the pattern of life that we see in Jesus and the disciples in the gospels, as close to that as we possibly can. Last night in our evening service, we were talking about this idea of how to even define a believer. When it comes to follower of Jesus, if that's the believer, then unless he shows who Christ is, historically, that's what they did. They went out to show who Christ is. And by showing is not just like, oh, I'm just going to walk around in humility. You exercise humility by verbally saying or teaching that goes back mm -hmm. to, yes, Luke uh, is a great example, but then it goes, it does connect back to the Great Commission too, where it is sure. uh, obey and uh, teach them everything that I've commanded. But unless you live and if unless you go out there and live among them, you don't would you wouldn't have the opportunity to uh, obey in that context or teach what he has commanded. Interesting, very interesting. Uh, what instead is the missiology of the early church and how did uh, the theology of early church affect it? That's a really great way of phrasing the question because I, I believe that missiology really is driven by those underlying currents of our broadical, broader theological understanding. We definitely see that in the early church. So let me just set up kind of a, another contrast between the, the way many of us think about theology and then missiology and how they did. And again, um, I'm not saying here that we're wrong and they're right. In fact, I think we're pretty spot on with a lot of the ways we think about it. But I think that we can also find places where our perspective might be strengthened by adding their perspective, complementary right. perspectives. So we uh, in the West, because our theology has tended to emphasize a particular theology of salvation, comes from Romans, uh, comes from many of those great uh, Pauline articulations of the gospel, where we present Jesus as having sacrificed himself for my sins. And the result is this personal experience of salvation, individual conversion and transformation. I think that's absolutely right. That's a 
great interpretation of what the New Testament says about that. And so when we, based on that soteriology, that theology of salvation, we then step into missiology. We tend to develop missiological models that focus on things like conversion, on preaching the news about Jesus and his sacrifice for sins and the salvation. And we mean by that kind of the individual salvation that we can experience through him. And of course, that this also goes on with other elements, the, the mercy and compassion that we exemplify through many other complementary ministries as well. In the early church, you had, uh, they wouldn't have disagreed with that, by the way. Uh, they would agree with pretty much everything I just said there. Jesus is the sacrifice for sins. We can experience this personal salvation through him. But they tended to use a slightly different starting point for their theology of salvation. When they speak from scripture about what Christ has done for us, they'll often draw first from texts that speak about the, the victory of Christ over the powers. Uh, you see this, for instance, in Colossians 1, some of the texts from Ephesians, and it's rooted a lot in uh, the Messianic Psalms that they liked to interpret about Jesus's identity. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, these prophecies of the Messiah as this victor who goes out to rule the nations. He's defeated the powers of sin and death and Satan so that people can be liberated. So they take that kind of starting point for their theology of salvation is what's called Christus Victor theology. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's not an either, either or. I think both of these are very present in scripture. But because they take that as their starting point, their missiology looks a little bit different. It has a little bit more of an emphasis on what we might now call spiritual warfare. You might even call them power encounters. A lot of early Christian missionaries sort of going out and facing the power of pagan gods by going directly up to their temples and confronting them and so on. So it has a little bit more emphasis on that and a little bit more emphasis on the communal dimension. This is a big thing I try to draw out in my book that they wouldn't have disagreed with that individualized picture of salvation. But for them, they were really motivated by this idea of the kingdom as the growing, spreading community of Christ. And so when they think about mission, they tend to think more about kind of in terms of planting outposts, if you can put it that way, sort of going into a new area and planting a worshiping community, which then represents the manifest presence of the kingdom of God in the midst of what used to be sort of hostile occupied territory. And so there's this emphasis on worship. One of the big texts they drew from for their missional inspiration was Malachi 1.11, where it prophesies that one day there will be offerings of worship, pure sacrifices of worship being made amongst all the nations. And so for them, just being there and having a worshiping community, regardless of how many people converted or not, just having a worshiping community there was a big fulfillment of their idea of mission. It's interesting how you are taking not only the theology and therefore building this missiology, but I also liked how you're bringing the global cultural aspect to that. So it, whole your talk to me is 
undergirded bit with this idea of our culture in the West, especially in America, is the individualistic culture where we are all about uh, self and it's uh, in because culture says so. So church is not much different from the culture, right? It's right. A, it mirrors that. So yes, as you said that too, yes, it's a personal experience, personal conviction. But again, John 3.16 is not like, oh, Matthew, he died for Matthew, but that's exactly what we do in camps. Put your name right. there, right? Right, right? But that's not what, what the scripture is doing. We are putting something in the scripture while rather than letting the scripture speak to us, because then it becomes a collectivism, which is most of the world, tribal and nations and the group of people and early church. Again, depending on how you look at the early church, we see this whole group of people coming to Christ, whole family. And when I say family, it's not just family of, so my family is very large family in Pakistan. When I say family, Javed family, it's not just my immediate family here, which is uh, six members of the family. To, that would be like uh, in Pakistan, if you, you're sitting in a Javed family, you're looking at mm-hmm. this clan, uh, which has mm-hmm. uh, in the same household, you have multiple layer of families living and eating and communal living. So there is this- right cultural idea that often we miss uh, in Western missiology because we are not looking through the lens of, even in the Bible, Bible is written, I think, uh, when you look at the Bible, um, again, it's God's culture, God is there, I get it, it transcends all other cultures, but still it's written in a specific context. So context uh, means it has a culture behind that text context. So I think when talking, it just came to my mind, how over there whole communities come to Christ or go somewhere else. Islam, that's how Islam spread. Because once you, one chieftain says, or one Sardar or somebody said that we are in, whole group will be in. It's not a matter of choice. For us, it's a personal decision, even for that community. Within that community, it's a personal Mm -hmm. decision. So it's a different, but at the same time, it's a communal approach. And I love how you connected with the Malachi 1.11, because there is the fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And therefore, in Revelation, we see that fulfillment uh, being in the presence of God, and all of them are worshiping every tribe, mm-hmm. every nation. And I think that makes us, our idea, individualistic idea, such a puny uh, or such a small, teeny tiny thing in the context of what God is doing. And I think that makes also God less God. When you put him in individualistic, he becomes like a smaller God than the magnificent God we see in the Bible, who is uh, saturating his people, uh, a nation, to let the other nation know that this is how I function. It's fascinating what you're sharing. And I think there is also this component when it comes to talking to you, it just comes to my mind the idea how people uh, 200 years ago, if they were having this same conversation, they would be looking at different way because they didn't have access to what you and I have, literature mm-hmm. and the contribution of a really good, both secular and Christian scholars and the material that is out there. But if that was not enough, the easy access to people groups and uh, how they function and being able to mm-hmm. zoom out and see, oh, this is how they function. This is how we function and comparison of that. And I think all those things do contribute uh, both to our theology, but also our missiology. And I love it. I think that's a fantastic way to 
look at rethinking missions, mm-hmm. rediscovering, as you said. On practical level, mm-hmm. how do you think this should affect global missions today? What, if anything, should change and what, if anything, should stay? So the, the ideas in this book are really not so much about taking away anything we've been doing. I think there are real strengths to the way missions have been done. You know, we've talked about some of the limitations of individualistic culture and so on. But at the point where we are in history, many Western missiologists have really made great strides in accounting for that and finding ways beyond that. You know, I'm not interested in in taking away things we've been doing, but more just adding some complementary perspectives to give a more robust sense of why the church is active in mission. And one of the ways that ties in with your question is just that we, in our culture and in our age, we do tend to emphasize results, right? Mm -hmm. We like to see whatever it is we're aiming for. We like to have a goal and we want to see the numbers at the end of the process match the goal that we've set for ourselves. The early church really didn't do that. And it's not a bad thing to have goals and it's not a bad thing to see numbers go up, whether that's people groups engaged or translations made or converts or whatever it might be. But what I love about early church missiology is that it's just so big picture. It wants to keep that big picture in view, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is reigning even now in heaven as the messianic king. One day we're going to see the full consummation of that reign. But even now, right now, we can start to show the manifestation of that reign Mm -hmm. in fulfilling these prophecies like Malachi 1.11, planting, worshiping communities all over the place. So there definitely are practical models you can get in the descriptions in the book. I'm not going to go into a lot of them because it covers such a broad range of history. And so there's many different ways that they tried things, a little bit of sort of the ascetic wandering model, different monastic models, different church planting models. There's a lot in there in terms of practices that they tried out. And some of those might prove edifying and inspirational to some readers and others might not. But the main point is really a point about perspective, right? The early church would not have been so interested in the results of, in terms of numbers, practices, et cetera. They would really be interested in the big question, the missionary's manner of life, right? If you're living like Jesus, that's what defines success in God's mission in their eyes. In that community where you live, is the kingdom of God being manifest in their midst by Christians worshiping and Christians living by Jesus, like Jesus? And so that's what they wanted to see, right? And of course, if you're doing those things, mission will flow out of them. And so I think that's a strength we can bring alongside our practical goal-oriented way of looking at things. Matt, that's again, I'm hearing you. I've been in the West long enough to have a competitive study for East and West. And as you were talking, I'm thinking it's interesting that here in the West, uh, I think part of the reason we do this practice of how many converts, how many events, how many engagements, how many numbers and goals and graphs. Oh, yes, we are more educated. Probably, I don't know, uh, but I think at the same time, or more academic, I guess, but I think at the same time, I think uh, part of the reason is we are very analytical people here, right? We Mm -hmm. think, and we think a lot. It's almost like Greek way of doing things. 
versus Egyptian ways like or uh, Pakistani way or Chinese way or Indian way is different. They're like, okay, we're going to learn by doing it. So mm-hmm. you here, uh, you go to school to become a mechanic. Over there, you sit down with a mechanic and learn from him. And then by watching, you do it too. But part of the whole this, uh, I'm making it like I'm breaking down the scholarly concept in like every day life for me, uh, how I see it. And I'm thinking when, if I am really comfortable, if I'm really following Jesus, I'll really talk about being believer by uh, being follower of Jesus, what that really means, what it would look like, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm really comfortable with that idea, so my focus will be on being that. If my focus is on being the disciple of Jesus, on being the believer, on being the follower of Jesus, then that's where I will draw my worth. Mm-hmm. And because of that worth, I will not look at how many people are coming to Christ or what they're doing and what I'm doing. Rather, I'll it will be more of a mirror, right? I'm mm-hmm. looking at the mirror, like, am I becoming more like Christ? Am I uh, serving the Lord? Am I, so it will be more like, am I... F- applying the great commission on me right but i think it's often is like okay am i doing the great commission am i Hmm. making other people apply the great commission versus when i become the embodiment of all of that then of course the spirit will move and cause other people to see which is in the end of the day that's what we want we want to be those uh, little uh, christ everywhere so people can see christ that's that's the reason why i want to be a Christian because I see, okay, this is, and, and that's basically, that's the major argument against Christianity, that hypocrisy, judgmentalism, and all mm-hmm. the other things. It's not that every person is like that, because unless you come in and experience, you would not know. Uh, mm-hmm. From our side, you can judge me and say that I judge you, but that's not true. But by and large, it is. Because there is that disassociation from the reality, because we are looking not at me, I think that's what I'm hearing from you. These people yeah. were examining their lives. Uh, they were focusing on their life, becoming more like Christ. And when they did that, Christ became evident to them who were around them. I love the way you are helping me to even refine some of these ideas. So what is one takeaway from all of this that you would like pastors and practitioners to keep taking mind? How can this be applied on a practical level? So I think the biggest thing that I hope for is a sense of encouragement. And I know that's maybe not the most practical thing in the world, but I think it's important. In my context here, I'm in a more rural area, a lot of small churches. It's definitely a mission field, as every place is really. Very rural in context, but also very unchurched, one of the most unchurched areas of the nation up here in New England. And what I find is that pastors often feel like failures because we're trained in that kind of how do I measure my success mindset, that analytical mindset that you talked about. And, you know, they're barely holding the numbers that they have. Attempts at outreach really are tough going in a lot of cases. In, in our current cultural context, and particularly in a place like this. And not only pastoral ministry here in the States, but I've done a little bit of missions work in really difficult, slow-going ministry contexts. For instance, Muslim contexts in North Africa. 
And there again, it's easy for a missionary who might come from a Western mindset to kind of feel like a failure. Like, oh, you spent 20 years in the field and you come back to share about your ministry and people kind of want to hear about the results, right? Well, what the early church mindset would say, obviously results aren't bad. We want to see people coming to Christ. But what the early church mindset would say is that the most important thing of all is that you are a manifestation of the presence of God in that place, the kingdom of God. You have a church, doesn't matter how big it is. That's the body of Christ. And that is a phenomenal earth-shaking reality, whether you have 2,000 on a Sunday morning or whether you have five people. It's the body of Christ and the spirit of God is present there. To the early church mindset, they would say, that's the picture you need to be holding in, in central focus, right? Because that's really, as we've been talking about, what mission is going to come from. This sense that we are that mirror of the work of the kingdom of God, regardless of how many or what the results might be. It's more a question of identity than it is of practical results. So, so I just hope that, that some of the perspective will be an encouragement in some of those areas. I tell you, Matt, you encourage me, definitely. I'm looking at, I'm a pastor in a different setting, but same idea. I'm looking at the attendance, is it going up? How many? How is it? But at the same time, say encouragement to hear that God, again, God is interested in the church doing his job, right? It's a, Jesus said that I will build my church. Yes, the one tra- uh, interpretation is churches, me individually, you individually. But I really think that he was talking about collective group of people. Therefore, he said, where two or three are gathered in my name, not where you alone gather in my name. Well, he's there too. But ideally, it's got to be a community of believers. As you said, five people or 2,000 people doesn't matter. It's a group of people coming together. And sometimes I think Christ died for the church because church is his bride, and for the church, he is coming back to take him with him. But at the same time, I also think it's amazing that from the church, he is executing all of this. And wherever the church is, I often see boutique places in New York, a small little showroom, smaller pop-up shop or something. Mm -hmm. Why do they do that? Because it's the presence of that whole group. It's the presence of all those elements of that shop that makes that entity. And I think that's where the diversity of the body shows up. This is where diversity of thought and practice show up because the struggles that you have may not be exactly the same struggles that I have, but collectively we will be able to communicate to several more people because uh, our experiences. So I see the importance of that how you said uh, they questioned, the early uh, church people question. their question was, is this the most important thing to make converts versus, uh, or, or the numbers, or versus uh, the mindset of putting those churches, even mm-hmm. if it's a small, and we see that in Paul's work, he's just establishing those small communities everywhere. Mm-hmm. Church planting, again, it goes back to church planting. Before we close out today's episode, is there anything else, Matt, would you like to add to this content? Yeah, I think just one thing to allay any kind of misunderstanding. I think some readers or hearers might hear this kind of discussion and fear, well, couldn't this, pushing this kind of perspective, couldn't it just lead to Christians shrugging off outreach and 
developing just a laissez-faire attitude, like we're the church, it's God's mission, we shouldn't be so concerned about that. Uh, That's not really the picture that we see in the early church. Rather, what we see is that their focus on just the wonder of who they are in Christ, the fact that each church, each worshiping community represents this earth-shattering reality that God has broken into human history, and you can see it right here in this church on the corner, that really gave them an incredible sense of confidence. It, it, they weren't sitting back. It, it empowered them, this vision of God has done something extraordinary. Our little faith community is proof of that. The way that my own life is changing as I learn to walk as a follower of Jesus is proof of that. And so what we see is this direct result of active and intentional mission. So just in case anyone was worried about their danger of people shrugging off evangelism, if we're pushing this perspective, I don't think that's the case. It's certainly not what we see in there. I actually think that wherever the church is, there is the witness and the opportunity to speak and share, which is evangelism. Mm -hmm. There is the opportunity to rub shoulders with other people during those events that take place in that community, whether that is a um, secular event for a a market, flea market type of community event, or is it, in my context, it's a Diwali for Hindus just last Sunday or Saturday, something like that was Eid for Muslims. So you have these things uh, constantly for, there are different festivals going on for Chinese uh, community. There's like this festival light going on. So you have these opportunity, but when you are there as a community, you are part of a, maybe a sub-community of a community, but yet mm-hmm. you have more opportunity to do the evangelism, but more of what's been said before, friendship evangelism or that right. relational evangelism where you hear what the need is and speak into that need rather than that fiery preacher who just go through a town after town and just say it and move on. So there is settle down, share the gospel, show the gospel, live the gospel versus <clears throat> let me tell them they're going to go to hell if they don't receive Christ. Both have worked in the past and continue to work. In some cases, people need to hear that and that person needs to run out of there as soon as possible. Otherwise, probably he will be uh, executed right away. So there's a, that space too, but living there allows in tough cultural situations to uh, make space for people to see that, oh, you don't need to be violent when you discuss God. If yeah. that God is different, you, so it takes time. Uh, so I like this idea of a building community and not looking at um, just running from place to place. Matt, if listener wants to get in touch with you, what are the easiest ways? Probably the easiest way to get connected with some of my work is through a blog that I have. It's called The Peace and the Passion. You can look that up. I think it may be listed in the show notes as well. You can also touch base at my church website, callousbaptist.org. That's C-A-L. AISBaptist.org. And that's got some contact info for me. Great. And definitely we'll also include that in the episode description here. For the last thing, and I do this with all of our guest speakers, uh, all our guests on this podcast, because we talk about heavy topics and I like to ask you to tell us a joke. Sure. Well, so I'm up here in Maine and the one thing that people in Maine love to do 
as probably most places, is complain about the weather. Right now it's spring, but you wouldn't know it to look out the window because spring looks a little different here than other places. The humor columnist Dave Barry once wrote about Maine that we've got four seasons up here. We've got almost winter, winter, still winter, and road construction season. And that's pretty accurate. That's good. That's good. I was thinking he was going to say something like, whine about it, complain about it. So I was thinking (laughs) about that. Well, that's probably also true, too. That's great, man. (laughs) Uh, We have beautiful season right now already. It's, It's really nice here. Thank you so much for being on the show. Again, that was Mad Burden. And thank you to all our listeners. We truly could not do this without you. If you learn something, have a topic suggestion, or would like to leave us feedback, drop us a note at OurUrbanVoices.com. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave an honest review wherever you listen to your podcast. Tune in next week for more honest discussions from Diverse Voices. You've been listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javed, which presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Please check back for new episodes every week.